Good morning, Montana. I'm Courtney Kibble-White, your guest host this morning on Voices of Montana. We've given Tom some well-deserved time off, so I'm glad to be here with you this morning. And and over the last few weeks, you've heard from Tom. We've had the American Prairie Foundation. It used to be called the American Prairie Reserve. Now they're going by American Prairie. We've had their leadership on. We've talked to the Montana stock growers who are appealing the BLM's decision to allow bison grazing on uh, American Prairie public land. And and today we're going to hear from Marco Manukian with the Phillips County Livestock Association, as well as the attorney representing Montana stock growers. That's Karen Bud Fallon. That'll all be today. Stay with us on Voices of Montana. It's time for the fastest hour in radio from Montana for Montana, Voices of Montana with Courtney Kibblewhite. Filling in for Tom Schultz. Call in today, 866-627-5483. Or text a comment or question to 781-627-5483. Now here's your host, Courtney Kibblewhite. Thank you so much, Cody. Of course, I'm filling in today for Tom Schultz. And today we're going to continue the conversation, continuing to get curious and understand what is going on in central Montana. What is going on with this potential American Serengeti and learn a little bit, um, a little bit more about the next steps in the process. As you have probably been been following in the news, and we've certainly covered on the Northern News Network, on Northern Ag Network, and here on Voices of Montana about the American Prairies activity here in Montana. The American Prairie was founded in 2001, and then started buying land up in the Missouri Breaks around 2004. Um, and Thomas had uh, Pete Gettys came on the show in mid August once. Um, the BLM had issued their final decision to allow bison to graze on the uh, public land that's that's part of the American Prairie. So I wanted to um, try and to engage both sides here. And so I thought the best way to introduce American Prairie to those of you who may not be as familiar with this issue, if you're a farmer or a rancher, or you live in Montana, this might be an issue that's pretty... Um, that's a pretty close to home hot button issue, but if not, I wanted to introduce you to American Prairie in general. So, Cody, would you go ahead and play the clip on who is American Prairie and what is their mission here? Our mission is to stitch together a complex of public and private lands that's 3.2 million acres in size. Very important, Tom, and I think this is where we can do a much better job of communicating this. Of that 3.2 million acres, 1.1 includes the Charles M. Russell National Wildlife Refuge. That's the anchor for our project. So not that we own it or control it, but it's a national wildlife refuge, right? So the 3.2 million acres already includes a million acres of federal lands dedicated to wildlife restoration. We buy land from people who want to sell to us. We, we have no ability to control the land. And it's a property rights approach. This is a very different model for conservation, and, and it's a new private lands conservation approach going forward. One last point on the total acreage I'll make, Tom, about control. When we're finished, about 20% of the land we will own, of the, three, of the uh, not the 3.2, take out the Charlie Russell, the 2.1 million acres or so, about 20% of that is going to be deeded land that we own in fee simple title. The rest of it are public lands in the form of BLM grazing allotments. These lands are public lands, will be public lands. We have grazing privileges to them, just like any other uh, owner of base properties. And these lands are and will remain forever open to the public for the public to enjoy. So when we think about you know using a term like control, uh, we're subject on 80% of that 
total acreage to the laws and regulations that bound every other livestock operator going forward. So there's Pete Geddes, executive from the American Prairie, talking to Tom Schultz on this show on August 16th. We'll have to put that one in a podcast as well. If you, if you didn't listen, you should, you should go back and listen to how they represent their mission. And, and interesting there, you heard that 1.1 um, million of the acres that they are trying to gather will be public land. So it, it, it matters a lot how that land is managed. So now let me bring in Marco Manukian. Marco's... Um, Marco's here with us today, and he's a, a livestock owner and member of the Phillips County Livestock Association. Marco, just take us back in time. How did you first learn about American Prairie? What was the word around town when uh, this organization, nonprofit, made up of international donors started buying up land in, in Phillips County? Well, Courtney, thank you very much uh, for having me on the program and uh, try to share the livestock perspective of the uh, of the situation. So about like you mentioned in 2004, they started uh, buying a couple of ranches um, uh, in the southern part of the county that are not within the grazing district's purview. And I should mention, while I am the uh, secretary treasurer for the Phillips County Livestock Association, those named in the appeal uh, of the BLM decision are the North and South Phillips Grazing District, which is about 200 members that use those public lands for uh, grazing of livestock for food production. Um, so uh, we became uh, aware of that. And then when they started to buy property within the grazing districts, uh, those grazing districts uh, have a memorandum of understanding with the Bureau of Land Management. And so they should be consulted on changes to permits, uh, changes in seasons of grazing. Um, and we just think that that was a failure at that point. The BLM didn't uh, consult with the grazing districts. Uh, the, the MOU was uh, uh, discarded, and th- that brought the grazing districts into the fold, uh, trying to protect those those lands that they have some um, input on in terms of their use. So, and, and let me be clear here: if I'm, I suppose there's an element of being a good neighbor of sharing what you might be doing on your property and and just being transparent there, but. So they don't legally have to consult with a neighbor, though, on what they might be doing with their land. But it's you're you're talking about. So what's their legal obligation, I guess, or a, any group's legal obligation to consult with a grazing district on a change of use? Sure. So uh, as he pointed out in his uh, uh, little clip, there is the difference between the private lands. Certainly they have a private property right. It's those BLM lands that fall within the grazing district. <clears throat> those it would be the south because they haven't bought any property in the north. But we share an MOU, and they they should have input on the EA process, uh, anything that would change preference, which is the difference between AUMs, between two permittees, um, any changes in uh, um, the the fencing construction. Uh, those should all have been brought before the, the grazing districts for their approval um, because they represent the, the leasees and uh, – there, that was never a, a part, and that is a part of our appeal, is that the, the MOU was not adhered to at all. And just just a little jargon, I'm thinking if, if you're not, if you don't work with a public land, the, the AUMs that Marco mentioned is Animal Use Months. Correct. Which, uh, which 
you know, if gosh, if you think back, I think was it in the 1930s with the with the Taylor, Taylor Grazing Act, and you know, we we saw the Dust Bowl when nothing was regulated at that time, and we saw a lot of erosion and a lot of negative consequences, and so um, so it matters on that public land that there's some um, some regulation, and that's 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 part of what we're referring to there. Correct, and both the North and South Grazing districts. Uh, came out of the Taylor Grazing Act and were formed in the 30s, soon after the Grazing Act was passed. So they've been around for a long time. Mm -hmm. Uh, um, There's one gentleman with the North Grazing District. His dad was the first president of the Grazing District for the North North, uh, Phillips County. So a long history there of participation with the, the land management agency. In our case, it's the BLM. Well, and I gotta gotta admit to to our listeners, I got a little too uh, too cool for school after um, after high school, and, and ended up going to college out of state. So honestly, I was out of state from 2004 to 2014, those ten years. And and when American Prairie really got on my radar was with that purchase of the PN Ranch in Winifred. Sure. And then, of course, we saw the um, the formation of the Save the Cowboys, Stop the American Prairie, and um, so in those in those ten years, perhaps before the 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 PN acquisition, when the um, the American Prairie is now over three hundred thousand acres at that time, it's really really becoming something to note. What any any legislation or or changes to um, to their grazing districts at that time, or any any collaboration, I should say. Well, so in terms of what the BLM did, so after they made those first initial purchases. They put forward a large proposal. Um, first of all, they started off with one allotment in Phillips County, which was within the grazing district, and we appealed that decision. Then they came forward with a proposal, and I think it was like 28 allotments over four BLM districts, uh, three or four counties. It was a large proposal. Uh, there was only one public meeting for that. In time, the BLM decided that maybe that was too much to bite off and chew, so they they stopped that, and they just focused on seven allotments, all within Phillips County, for change in class of livestock, change in season of use, and change some allotment boundaries or interior fences. I really should say the, the allotment boundaries would probably stay. So the, they made that request, and that's what we're dealing with today: is that decision. Right. So, and maybe again, I'm I'm always conscious when we're on this show that not everyone interacts with or <laughs> owns public land, you know, not sure. everyone works with the federal government. And, and even folks that have moved to Montana may not understand how much federal land we have here and, and what a big deal it is. So talk a little bit, if you don't mind, Marco, um, from the landowner's perspective, what is the threat or why is this, why is this a hot button issue? And maybe speak from, uh, speak from, from your, your neighbor's perspective, if you will. Why does it matter if someone, buys buys land they've got their private property and then they um they go ahead and 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 have there's public property in there too why why does it matter that they get to graze what why why does it matter to a neighbor what uh, somebody does on on their own public allotments sure there's probably a couple examples that come to mind one would be uh the time that you get to graze those permits uh for the most part our permits are uh spring through summer early fall and that's the time they get you, you get to use them. Uh, there are very few permits that allow year-round grazing. Um, and so when they were granted that opportunity, uh, that really came onto the radar of our, our neighboring livestock producers that said, hey, 
we would like the opportunity to, to do that too. And the BLM said, well, we're not going to entertain those kinds of activities. Um, so they, they did an environmental analysis for American Prairie and granted them that. Um, we found out at about a meeting, one producer just asked the BLM representative, um, the buffalo were out all winter long. And they said, oh, yeah, we granted them that opportunity. There was no, there was no notification of the public who had, who had commented on the previous EAs related to that subject. So we think that kind of happened in the, in the dark night. The American Prairie and Western Watersheds were the only ones that were notified of that change. Uh, I think that was February 2014 or 13 in, in that time frame. Um, so the, the locals really felt slighted uh, that anything that they were interested uh, in doing was not being adhered to and, and the, there was favoritism going on. Uh, another quick example, if I can get it before the, the time frame here, but um, a few, few years ago, uh, a permittee asked the BLM if he could put a water line out to his BLM uh, property. Uh, water is in scarce supply in Phillips County now, and it was uh, then. And they told him, we don't have time to do the environmental analysis. You can ask the county commissioners if you can go down the road right of way and put your water line towards your BLM permit. So at the same time, uh, the American Prairie uh, wanted to put a recreational facility down on the uh, off of Highway 191. Uh, they started the EA process in May. Uh, it goes over six miles of BLM, the trenching does. It probably went through sage-grouse habitat. And by August, they had the rights of way, and they trenched power and telephone in that direction uh, over six miles. And here a producer was just looking for a water line and was denied. Which which just which makes you wonder why the what's what's the difference? Why why the favoritism? Correct. Why the favoritism? Correct. Yeah. Wow. So, so when we when we come back, we're going to talk to uh, to Karen Bud Fallon about how she got involved with this appeal, and uh, we'll hear more from Marco. Of course, you're welcome to join in if you've got um, got questions for for uh, for Marco or Karen. We're happy to engage. Thanks for joining us here on Voices of Montana. Montana, we're lucky to call it home. From farms, ranches, and hometown businesses to our tallest peaks, ski slopes, and rushing rivers, the vibe is different here. At Stockman Bank, we give you the time and freedom to enjoy this great Montana lifestyle. Bank easily online or visit us at any of our locations across Montana. Convenient banking whenever and wherever you need it. Stockman Bank. Montana's brand of banking. Member FDIC. Welcome back to Voices of Montana. I'm Courtney Kibblewhite, your guest host this morning, sitting in for Tom Schultz. And today we are talking about the American Prairie. Once again, we've we've been doing a series following uh, following the development of this nonprofit uh, who's been, you know, uh, growing in Montana since 2001, I went to do their website. Went to their website to do a bit of research yesterday, and I was a little bit taken aback. There's a video on there, and um, and on the video it says, and you know, there's this be- these beautiful pictures, which you know what Eastern Montana looks like. It's gorgeous, and there's beautiful animals, and there's this amazing sagebrush and country, and the music that you know just kind of brings emotion. And then it says. Saving one of the world's last prairie ecosystems. And oh, I thought, well, my my brother's out there 
on a ranch in eastern Montana, and my family's been there for generations. What are we trying to do if we're not trying to get this land to the next generation? Do we, do we need somebody to to save this land from us? And I don't know. It just made you think about what what is what is saving the land? Is it um, and what is serving the people? Is it creating an American Serengeti where people can hike? Is it being able to raise livestock to feed the population? And and, and what are the implications of those two models? So we're exploring that further today. Um, I've got on the line Karen Bud Fallon, who is representing Montana stock growers in the appeal against the BLM's recent decision to allow a change of use. So Karen, uh, welcome. When did you first hear about American Prairie? How did you get involved? Thank you very much for having me on the program. Um, I actually also represent the north and south um, grazing districts that Marco was just talking about. So I represent all three groups in the appeal. And I first heard about American Prairie through the North and South Phillips Grazing Districts. They called the office back in 2012 or 2013 asking about the BLM and the proposed DA to change from livestock to bison. You know, was it legal from a Taylor Grazing Act standpoint because these public lands were are managed under a federal act called the Taylor Grazing Act. Um, and Karen, about- can I can I push you a little bit further to to share with our audience a bit more about the Taylor Grazing Act? What what is it? What does it mean to landowners and and especially agriculture folks in Montana, Wyoming? Oh, absolutely. So the Taylor Grazing Act was passed in 1934, and the United States had just come out of the Dust Bowl. Um, At that time, the federal government didn't really believe in debt, and they wanted to be able to settle all of this country. So they were really pushing the idea of come out to the West, settle these lands. They passed an act called the Stock Raising Homestead Act, which allowed a person to come out and and acquire 640 acres that they had to make productive use on to be able to to supply food and fiber to the nation. They had to um, jump through all sorts of hoops, and then the federal government would patent that land over to the settler. Well, the problem is, is in the West, is you can't really make a living on only 640 acres. I mean, it, we live Especially in a high in, desert. Yeah, eastern Montana. <laughs> yeah, it's it's dry. So the federal government came up with what they considered as a compromise and passed the Taylor Grazing Act. And the purpose of the Taylor Grazing Act was to take the areas that weren't settled through the Stock Grazing Homestead Act or various other homestead laws and allow individuals in the area to apply for use of grazing allotments within the grazing districts that Marco was talking about. And there were three legal requirements to be able to have a preference right to graze those allotments. One of them was that you had to live in the local area and support the local community. And so they were not going to grant grazing, a grazing allotment in Phillips County to somebody 
from Oklahoma. They had to live in the area. They had to be supporting the community. They had to have livestock that they could place on the land. And then finally, in Montana, they had to have base property or private land on which they could graze their livestock when they weren't on the BLM land. So that it created a unit. And in that way, you would have a ranch unit, you would be supplying business to your local community, you would be protecting the stability of the community and the stability of the ranch because you had private base land that you could graze your animals on when they weren't grazing on the BLM land. So we have to take a quick break, but when we come back, I'm going to ask Karen um, what, if anything, in the Taylor Grazing Act allows for um, conservation. Well, who put that beef commercial in right before the break? That that certainly reminds me uh, where our beef comes from and grateful for all of our producers out there. But um, we're talking to Karen, Karen Bud Fallon, who's representing the North and South Phillips County Grazing District, as well as Montana Stock Growers. And, and Karen, you were just telling us um, a bit of history about the Taylor Grazing Act. And, you know, I'm curious within that... Voices of Montana, we really try and get all sides of a topic out, let the listener make an educated decision for themselves. So I'm curious within that, is there, um, is there, does it talk about the importance of land conservation, wildlife conservation? Is, is that, a, was that thought about back then or is, is that completely uh, void? Um, no, the Taylor Grazing Act was set up and the grazing districts were set up to conserve, to conserve the land. That's why when you get a grazing permit, your grazing permit has seasons of use, like Marco talked about. Your grazing permit has a number of animal unit months that are actually adjudicated to the land saying that you can run, you know, 500 cows for two months or you know, whatever, whatever the rain science dictates so that there is enough regrowth in the grass so that you don't have erosion, so that you don't have, have issues with the land so that you can turn around and graze it the next year. I mean, you were talking about your family. I grew up on a family ranch too. And I, when people talk about the federal lands, we've probably got more incentive to protect our grazing permits than anyone because we rely on them year after year. So there, there is absolutely no incentive for a rancher to go out and overgraze or cause erosion or do anything to his permit because you won't have a way to make a living for the following year. Uh, Karen Marco. And so the idea of, you know, the only way you can conserve land is through some sort of a, you know, return to pre-European man, some sort of a Serengeti thing, I, I think is absolutely rejected both by the law and by the range science. Okay. Now, when you talk about wildlife, there is nothing in the Taylor Grazing Act per se that talks about wildlife grazing. Wildlife are owned by the state. And when the AUMs, the animal unit months, were set, that was also in consideration of the right amount of wildlife that would also be able to use that land, whether it's deer or elk or sage grouse or whatever, you know, whatever critter you're talking about. So while wildlife consideration is absolutely a part of 
setting seasons of use, is setting your grazing rotation, is setting the AUMs. That's not a protected use by the Taylor Grazing Act like livestock production is. Karen, uh, Marco, good morning. And also, doesn't the Taylor Grazing Act spell out the uh, livestock by name that can occupy those permits? And then to follow up on your point about uh, appropriate grazing levels, I would say we've probably, of the 54,000 mother cows that we had in Phillips County, 20,000 mother cows have gone somewhere else because of the uh, repeated drought that we've been in and and the damage from grasshopper uh, occupying some of that space too because they they don't follow the rules of of AUM usage. So anyways, if you could speak to that, uh, the names of the animals that can be in those permits. Well, when the Taylor Grazing Act was passed in 1934, it talked about the class of livestock, which were cattle, sheep, goats, Um, Horses. Horses. So there were the four categories of livestock that the Taylor Grazing Act in 1934 was considering. There were two subsequent court cases that looked at bison grazing on Taylor Grazing Act BLM allotments. And in Karen, we're going to have to take a quick break. Uh, when we come back, we'll dive in further. So thank you so much, Karen Bedfallon and Marco sure. Manukian on Voices of Montana. Voices of Montana continues right after this. Welcome back to Voices of Montana, and we are jumping right back into a discussion with Karen Bud Fallon, the attorney who is representing Montana stock growers and the North and South Phillips County Grazing Districts on an appeal to the BLM over their recent decision to allow um, change of use for American Prairie on um, on their application. So, Karen, we were just talking about the class of livestock in the Taylor Grazing Act, and and I believe, and correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe that American Prairie might argue that in Montana, bison are classed as livestock? Yes, that is correct. Montana has defined in state statute bison as livestock. But that doesn't satisfy the Taylor Grazing Act requirements because the Taylor Grazing Act and the court cases that have followed have really leaned on the idea of whether you're talking about production livestock or wildlife. And production livestock is something that you are selling, that you're regularly calling, that you're taking care of, that you're managing, and that you're selling a product from the livestock, whether it's meat or or skins or whatever it is you're doing. That's different than what American Prairie is doing. American Prairie is just simply turning out the bison. There's no plans on selling them. There's no plans on managing them. American Prairie, as part of their request in the BLM granted to take out significant numbers of internal fences. In the cases that talked about bison, they in the courts, they've talked about how very tall, very solid fences were going to be put around bison because it's known how dangerous bison are. Um, American Prairie wants to just put in single-strand electric fence, which is, in my opinion, the way bison move and understanding bison husbandry is not going to stop bison from getting out of 
these allotments and onto neighboring lands or onto neighboring allotments. And because these bison aren't managed, they're not going to be used to humans, which is going to cause masses of problems for all of the neighbors when the bison get out on their property. Yeah, we do have neighbors that bison have gotten onto their property, and it's a different way that uh, you you handle them. And eventually, at least in the last uh, examples, they've had to shoot the animal because they can't do anything else with it. And it's probably going to return once it escapes. It's going to continue to escape. So, And isn't there some disease risk as well if, when mixing bison with cattle? So there there are some diseases that the bison are carrying, anaplasmosis, um, um, EHD, uh, blue, blue tongue, um, those are crossover to, to livestock in the case of anaplasmosis. It has a human component. So there are some risks out there that, uh, haven't been really, uh, discussed much and we do, uh, discuss them in our appeal. So Leptos- I- leptospirosis would be another one. Okay. So now I, I, I don't want to give, um, the audience the perception that this BLM decision happened overnight. Karen or Marco, I'm not sure who to who to point this question to, but I mean, I was at a, a hearing in Malta a year ago. I know that they've um, they first applied for this change of use. Was it was it 2019? And there has been um, economic and environmental analysis that has gone into this decision. So I, I'm I'm curious, what do you guys think? Was the um, environmental analysis, the economic analysis, was it was it sufficient? Go ahead, Karen. Well, we can start with the economic analysis because the National Environmental Policy Act, which is what required the EA, requires consider of consideration of environment, economics, and social impacts to the local community. But in the EA for American Prairie, what they did is they took the economic analysis from a production bison perspective, one where you're raising bison to sell for meat. And, and they said, so this is the economic analysis to the local community if they were raising their bison for, for selling meat. And the study was really old, but then the BLM said, well, that's close enough to what American Prairie Reserve wants to do. And if you're taking production bison and changing it for production, for production cattle, there's really no difference. But you were comparing apples to oranges because then the EA would go on to say, in numerous places, this is non-production. American Prairie Reserve is not raising bison for production. So when you're doing an economic analysis and you're comparing the economics of production livestock operation to a non-production livestock operation, you can't just say there's no impact because you're comparing apples and oranges. So I think that was a huge problem. Yeah. With regard I, to the, go ahead, Marco. Well, I was just going to say, you know, our commissioners have kind of looked at this from a, a, a livestock perspective. And of the number of animals or cattle that they've taken off the landscape and replaced with their bison, uh, if each one of those uh, animals re, uh, gives an input of uh, $800 to, own the land and assets for operating a cow, and you multiply that by the number of head that they've replaced, it's a $2.5 million economic impact annually in lost production to Phillips County. Uh, so we do think that the 
economic analysis didn't account for the animals that were were removed in the equation. Say that number again. So if you think that each animal represents about $800 of investment for every cow, uh, there's $2.5 million that has been removed in economic activity with the removal of livestock from the from those because it's being replaced with an animal that's not productive. And for people that haven't been to Phillips County in Malta, how many? What's the population? What are we? What are we talking about? Roughly four thousand. So two point three million for a community that size. I mean, that's impacting your schools. That's oh, absolutely. Everything. Yep. Well, and it's also impacting local businesses because we've seen study after study that that local jobs based on a recreation community. So that's like people that work in the motel, people that work in the coffee shop those kind of things, those jobs only average somewhere between sixteen and 20000 a year, whereas jobs that are based on livestock production, where you have people that live in the community all the time, you've got the employees, when you have a rancher and he needs to buy feed or equipment, he's much more likely to go to the local community than drive all the way to Billings or some other larger place, the economic difference in jobs for the community is just massive. And none of that was con- accounted for either. Um, American Prairie keeps talking about how this is going to create the, all these wonderful recreation jobs, but the numbers don't match. Well, let's go. We've got a, a caller in. Uh, Richard from Lewistown has a question. And so we will go to Richard. Welcome to Voices of Montana. Yes, I do have a question concern about the topic that you're talking about, being the cattle and the and the uh, and the bison. Can I, it's my understanding that the the cattle and the horses, sheep and the goats, that you have to have uh, that to be vaccinated, make sure free from disease. Now, understand, uh, if the bison has a free range, does that mean that they don't have any vaccinations status at all? Uh, that's a very, question. very good question, Richard. By law, there's very few uh, rules about vaccination. Most producers uh, do that so that they can be productive and stay away from diseases that would impact their productivity. So they they uh, vaccinate for brucellosis. They vaccinate for uh, uh, PI3, which is a upper respiratory disease. Um, the APR has decided not to vaccinate their animals. Um, they don't have a very large production number either. It's about 30% uh, reproductivity on the, on their animals. Um, I think that our appeal uh, kind of points out that the disease impact on the animals could be suppressing their productivity. So, uh, And the risk is, is some of those things could be uh, transferred to the neighboring cattle who are trying to do their best to keep uh, leptospirosis uh, and things like that out of their herd. So, um, that's a good question. No, livestock producers do it to be productive. APR has chosen not to do it because they're not productive. And to be clear there, Karen, if someone, if they did decide to <laughs> vaccinate their bison, would that change their bison to then becoming a productive livestock? Well, that would be one evidence of production livestock, but the court cases that looked at it said production is actually management and selling of product. And, and 
there is no evidence of any intent to sell a product. And the other thing they look at is, is how the animals are raised. Um, as Marco said, most of the grazing season for a livestock producer is spring, summer, and fall. And then those, the cattle are removed to the private property, which is how the Taylor Grazing Act was set up. But that's not happening in this case. In this case, those bison will be out there grazing year-round. Nobody's watching them. If they do get a disease, if, if a rancher sees disease in his herd, he immediately brings that animal in to doctor it and take care of it because he's looking to make a profit from that animal. And that's not going to happen with American prairie bison. Well, we're going to take a quick break here. Uh, when we get back, we'll finish our conversation and, and ask Karen, what are the next steps for those who are appealing the BLM decision? And we've got a question. Uh, we'll get to Priscilla in Columbia Falls right after this. Montana Fish, Wildlife, and Parks is accepting applications for the new Habitat Conservation Lease Program through September 30th. FWP is partnering with landowners on the Habitat Conservation Lease Program to protect priority wildlife habitat through specific land management practices. This incentive-based program will pay landowners a one-time-per-acre fee for the lease with term lengths of 30 and 40 years. Normal ag operations and noxious weed control will not be impacted. Information and applications at fwp.mt.gov slash habitat lease. And we're back to Voices of Montana on the Northern News Network. You know, I have to say, I get it. I love the prairie. Some people think about Montana and the mountains and the and the western side of the state, but there's a there's a beautiful um, draw to the prairie. And you know, the crazy thing is that none of us really know what it was like back in the early 19th century when bison roamed from you know Montana to, to Mexico or, or or across the state. So it's that's interesting. Interesting to think about. Um, were there a lot of disease within that within that herd? Was it not as idyllic as we have in our imaginations? Don't really know. Let's head to our caller from Columbia Falls before we wrap up the show. Yeah, um, hear me. Yes. Okay. Um, there's one thing I think is missing in this whole picture, and we've been fighting this for an awful long time, back in the '90s even. Um, these folks who are trying to do this, they don't. You don't give them the, the 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 direction and the picture of what they really are or about, you know. And it's all about sustainable development. If you not research sustainable development, you'll find out who is really behind all of this kind of. It seems like you folks don't seem to understand that it's not just about the bison. It's about trolling uh, America and the, the way it's been developed. And it's all it's all done. It, did you know that the, there's a there's an organization called the World Business Council for Sustainable Development, and they and they were formulated in 1995 from Switzerland. You know, one of the world summit things, and they have 8.5. This is probably old stuff here. 8.5 trillion dollars worth to, to manage and try to do this. 19 million. Appreciate um, appreciate those comments, Chris. And there certainly is an international component to um, to the American Prairie. Let's circle back to Karen. Karen, as we wrap up the show, you've submitted the appeal. I think it was late August on the BLM decision. What happens next? What tell us tell us what lies ahead? Okay, there were three appeals submitted. Ours, one by the governor of Montana, and one by the attorney general of Montana. The 
when we all submitted our appeals, we also requested a stay because under the BOM rules, the decision can be implemented during the time it takes to hear the case. So we all requested a stay so that the BLM decision could not be implemented and the bison couldn't be turned out. The BLM has to respond to that, that request for stay by September 16th. And then the Office of Hearings and Appeals, which is where the, the case is going, has to make a decision on the stay by, or excuse me, the stay response is September 16th and the decision is October 13th. Once we get a decision, for example, if if we lose and the BLM judge says we're going to implement this decision anyway, then the three appellants can decide if they want to go to federal court or not to try to stop the implementation of the decision. If the BLM loses, the BLM has to live with that decision. They don't have the opportunity to go to federal court and try to get the decision changed. Once the stay is decided, then we will be assigned a full administrative law judge. He will set a schedule for, like a regular court would set a schedule for discovery and that kind of stuff, and then he'll set a hearing date, and it will be an evidentiary hearing. It'll be held in Malta or one of the surrounding areas because the law requires that the hearing be held in the locality where the decision well, is. Well, Karen, we're going to have to wrap it up there. We will definitely have to have you back. Marco, thank you. Thank you to our callers. Everyone, keep following this issue with Voices of Montana. You've been listening to Voices of Montana. Comments and opinions heard are those of the host or callers and not necessarily those of this station, sponsors, or Northern News Network. Join us Monday through Friday at 9.06 for Voices of Montana.